32. We'll be reading Psalm 32 as this psalm will be um, the portion in our message this morning. We'll be reading the entire psalm. <clears throat> A psalm of David, Mashiel. Mashiel is thought to mean instruction or for understanding. Uh, a didactic psalm. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me, My moisture is turned into the drought of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this shall every one that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found, Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart." May God bless the reading and the further preaching of His Word shortly. Especially the first two verses of Psalm 32, where we, where we have the, the two figures that we're hoping to, to consider and to study. Figures of forgiveness. In Psalm 32, verse 1, we read, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. And as we have been considering um, the, the many figures of forgiveness, either before partaking of the Lord's Supper, or at the very day of the Lord's Supper, we've been working through them in, in many, many months. And we've looked through the figure of God forgiving sin as canceling a debt. We've looked at the figure of God forgiving sin as washing dirt away, as erasing a criminal record, as God not remembering sin. Remember the classic definition of forgiveness, that picture of carrying sin and taking it away as if it were something which it is, unwanted and undesirable. And with that figure, we we looked at all the many connected ones to that, of 
God casting our sins in the depths of the sea, of God casting sins behind His back, of God putting sin away or throwing it away, not simply putting it aside. And then that picture of God removing sin as far as the east is from the west. And then we also looked at the figure of purging sin, purging us with hyssop, that one figure that's so connected to the sacrifices. And the last one that we looked was the picture of God hiding His face from our sins. And today, the picture we look at, there's in a sense two pictures, two figures. One of them is partly a figure and mainly a fact. But there's something of a figure in it. The first one is covering. That God would cover our sins. And the second one is in the next verse. Blessed is a man who, unto whom the Lord imputes no iniquity. Or imputes not iniquity. The, the figure of God not imputing sin to the repentant sinner. The person who asks God to forgive him. God does not impute that sin. And you'll see what I mean when I say the figure of covering sin. That will be our first point. Secondly, the fact of not imputing sin. When we speak of God not imputing sin, it is more a fact than it is a figure. There is something still of a figure in it. You'll see what I mean. But I think you understand it is a fact because that is precisely what God does when He forgives you. He no longer counts your sin as if it were your sin. It is no longer in your account. It's not imputed to you. That's why you are blessed if that is so, if that is the case with you. And then thirdly, we will look at the great blessing of forgiveness. This this psalm brings many blessings and we will just work through them. And so the, the purpose of this psalm before we, we still go to our first point, just a, a little note in terms of purpose. I, I made reference to this, that the word mashil is thought to mean, um, if you were to translate it, that it means to understand, to comprehend. So this is called a psalm of instruction. And since the theme is that of, of someone who, it's David, and he speaks of when he had a very heavy heart because he kept silence. He, he was not repenting. He was not confessing his sin. He was hiding it from God. But then finally he did confess it, and that is when he experienced that, that flood of blessings and of joy and of, of, of grace and of mercy. And it brought him blessedness. It brought him happiness. So we have here the instruction to the soul that is feeling its transgression and is yearning for its um, comfort. This is an instruction to that soul to, to, to go ahead and to believe that there is mercy with God, to, to confess your sin and do not be like David when he kept silent and, and silent and silence when he was in silence. See, every single one of us may be in different places. There, there's the unbeliever. And the unbeliever has the weight of his sins upon him. Sins are imputed to them. They are not covered. He is not protected. He feels this guilt. But even among, among unbelievers, there are many, many, many dimensions. There's some who deny that they have that guilt. There's some who acknowledge they have that guilt. But all of them have it. 
And then there's the realm of those who are true believers. They've already had the, the salvation that removes that, that, that powerful sense of guilt whereby we are really dead in our sins and trespasses. But here, this is a true believer. David was a true believer when he sinned greatly and kept silent for many months and, and, and was feeling himself wasting away. Well, souls like that need encouragement to go ahead and repent. And it's as, as if David is saying, when you do it, you will find it to be true too. I, I felt this this heaviness. I felt this guilt, but I stopped keeping silent. I did acknowledge my sin and mine iniquity. I have not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. And look at verse 5. And thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. See, David is, is instructing others to do the very same thing. This is what this psalm is, is all about. It is to encourage unbelievers to repent so that they can be forgiven for the first time. And it is encouraging believers who are under the burden of sin because they're not confessing, they're not wanting to acknowledge, to go ahead and do so. Because otherwise you will pine away and you will suffer the very, the very um, sorrow that he brings in this psalm. So let us start with the figure of covering sin. This, in, in our line of, of figures, this is the eighth figure that we're looking at. And if we count those four that are part of carrying, it's the twelfth figure. And have in your mind this reality. God did not have to use so many figures to convey a theological truth. He did it, of course, because He wanted to. And, and of course, the message is very clear. He, he wants this theological truth to be understood. Even with the thought that, that we would then want to really study the issue and look at each one of these figures, and you would have to sit through all of these sermons where you're being taught that God is a forgiving God. And think of the reality, beloved. If there were only two pictures, then there would have been two sermons. But we have spoken of all these um, dozens of pictures so far. And, and what it forces us to do is to learn the reality that God is in the business of forgiving sins. And it also speaks to the reality that in our human heart, we resist acknowledging this. Not because we don't want the blessedness of forgiveness. Of course we do. But the reality is that our hearts... Because of its pride, we want to stay where we do not acknowledge our sin and our iniquity. This psalm brings great blessedness, but only for the soul that acknowledges that it has sinned against a holy God. And this, this is the tension in which every heart lives. This psalm is offering that which the soul needs the most. But in our human nature, this is the last thing we want to acknowledge. I like to say that the problem is out there and look at the world and what it made me do. But this psalm is actually showing the problem is right here. And look at how I've offended a holy God. 
This psalm, in a sense, erases the whole world. It doesn't matter what people have done to you. It doesn't matter what you have suffered in regards to other people or the system of this world. This psalm is opening the window of your own heart and showing where the problem is. But for the soul that then acknowledges it, there is this instant blessing and this great uh, rejoicing because you did go to the one who can solve the greatest problem that your heart has. Your greatest problem is not other people. Your greatest problem is not the upbringing that you've had. The greatest problem is not the financial markets that we're in. If you were to lose your job and be destitute and have disease, those would not be the greatest problems. See, all of the sad sorrows of this world are because of sin. Sin is our greatest problem. And someone might say, but, but pastor, I'm suffering because someone died. Death is a very great problem. Yes, and it's the wages of sin. But I'm troubled because that person without Christ will go to hell. And hell is the greatest problem. Hell exists because of sin. Well, then Satan, he must be really the greatest problem because he's the king of that whole realm. Satan was an angel before he sinned. You see, beloved, sin is your greatest problem. And not the sin of your neighbor or the sin of your spouse, but the sin in your own heart. Because I will not have God's heavy hand upon me because of that person's sin. I will have God's heavy hand upon me because of my sin that I keep quiet about, that I hid, and that I don't confess. And so this psalm really brings the, 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 balm, the balm that would heal the greatest malady that every heart in this whole entire world is suffering. We need our sins to be covered. And that is why we're suffering. We suffer when it's not covered. Well, let's look at this, this picture then of covering sin. There, there are really two thoughts um, regarding the picture of covering So you immediately realize this is a picture because it's not in the sense that, boys and girls, if you were to think of sin as as an object that is in my heart and and then you were to think that God just covers it, 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 that's, that's kind of, in a sense, the picture. But you see that it's not the fact because that would mean that sin is still there. And that's not what happens. God carries sin away. So the covering of sin is is only a picture. And and it's in these two ways. The first one is in the sense of protection. In the Bible, covering um, regarding God's people always has a sense of protection. In in some commentaries, they they make these associations like, like Noah, who was covered from the flood by being in the ark. Or think of the Ark of the Covenant. It was covered with with the mercy seat um, over it. Think of when Moses was wanting to see the glory of God. God protected Moses by covering him with his hand and putting him in the cleft of the rock. See, there was a covering for Moses as a protection. Think of when Israel was in the very day 
um, of Passover, they were covered by the blood of the Lamb, and so that the angel passed over them and not through them. Um, Think also of Israel as they went into the wilderness. They were covered by that cloud during the day. See, it protected them. We're speaking of a covering for our sins because of our sins. See, think of this. Remember Adam and Eve? As soon as they sinned, they felt they needed covering. And, and putting those fig leaves upon them, was it was them trying to protect themselves because they had sinned. But what fig leaves cannot do, God can do. And so we're, we're speaking of this covering that comes from the Lord because of our sins. It's protection. But then there's a second element to this picture. And, and it's we could say the word hiding, and we need to explain it. Because in the very psalm, he was, he was in trouble because he was hiding his sin. But then it's the psalm that he's asking God to cover his sin. But see, this is the thing. If you're hiding your sins from God, you're the one covering it, and that's when the trouble arises. But if you go to God and say, Lord, I do reveal my sin. I have transgressed. Be the one to cover me now. I no longer cover it, but Lord, please cover me. And it is a hiding. You are, in a sense, asking that God would hide our own sins from His holy sight. You are saying, Lord, I don't want heaven to see my sins. I don't want Jesus. I don't want the Holy Spirit to see my sins. Cover it. I'm not the one who will cover it. I'm revealing it to Thee. I'm confessing it, but Lord, be the one to cover so that, so that I will be protected even from thy very wrath. It's one thing to ask God to cover it. It's quite a different thing for you to cover it. That's what Adam and Eve were trying to do. God came, and then at the end of the day, He covered them with that, that skin of the slain animal. And in doing that, he was already showing the picture of this very covering. He, just as he covered them with the skin of the animal that was slain, we, we have already here that in this picture of covering, it's the thought of Jesus dies and through his blood you are covered. That's the picture of covering. Stephen Charnock, he, he brings this dimension to it, and, and it's, it's very beautiful. Remember, we, we looked at the figure of blotting out. And that blotting out, it's not so much the erasing. It's in the days that you really couldn't erase. There wasn't pencil, there was ink. And if it was using parchment and you wrote the wrong Hebrew letters, you would then use ink and just blot them out. You would cover those letters. And then remember that there was the other way of blotting out if you were using a tablet of wax and you would there be with a stylus pressing and making the letters. If you made a mistake, you would flatten that out and melt it smooth. If you wanted to do a whole tablet again, you just melt it and made it nice and smooth all over. And what would you do? Put new letters covering the old ones. Boys and girls, this, this makes me think a lot of what, what you and I have. We, we have a chalkboard in the back there, and I always see little children going there. And what are they doing? They're erasing what was written and writing it over. And then somebody else comes and erases it and writes it over. Here and there, you can see some little letters that are like behind the letters that were there before. 
because we don't erase it quite too well. And then someone comes nicely and washes it with water, with, with a moist cloth, and you kind of start all over. But technically, there have been hundreds and thousands of words written, and you're writing over them. See, it's, it's a covering. And this is the picture here, that, okay, I have my sins, and, and here may be a sin of, of stealing, but then Christ covers that. He erases that and he writes over something else. And this, beloved, is what takes us to the second point, the fact of not imputing sin. These two figures together in this psalm are so providential. Um, Obviously, it's, it's an inspired psalm. It's the Lord speaking to us. And the concept of having our sins covered immediately brings a thought of what is there instead of what was the sin. Because see, with, with the wax tablet especially, you only cover that with other letters. You're not going to smooth that and just leave it as a smooth tablet. You smooth it in order to use it again. And think, boys and girls, is playing in the sand at the beach and you're, you're writing a name. But then you don't like it how it was written, so you flatten that sand again and you write another one over it. And this is what leads us then to this second point, the fact of not imputing sin. When God covers your sin, He doesn't leave your, your, for example, there was stealing, and then He covers that stealing, and there's nothing there to replace the stealing. We will see two things here. One of them is this, the concept of covering and the non-imputing sin put together. It's kind of like this. Let me read the psalm again to, to bring the flow. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Notice that the psalm forces me to know that the forgiveness is the same thing as the covering. It's another way to explain the forgiveness. Whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputes not iniquity. To see if, if, if he looks at my heart and, and the, the stealing that was there, the theft that I committed was blotted out, if it was covered, well, he, he doesn't impute that to me anymore. He doesn't account that theft that I committed to my account any longer because it was covered. See, the, the non-imputing flows out of the covering. And, and this is why I say it's partly a figure. You, it can be a figure in this sense that, that God would write it in the ledger and then He sees that our sins are covered so He takes it away from our ledger. That's the little bit of the figure. But here's the fact. The fact is that a holy God really does look to your holy heart if you've been forgiven and He does not put to your account the sins that you've committed and not just the theft everything else it's not imputed it's not counted it's not put to your account remember the imputing is is that um, financial term it's an accounting term it's the idea of opening your bank account and it's maybe you have a hundred dollars there the next day um, somebody put to your account something because they made a transfer and you look and there's a thousand dollars from a friend who, who deposited it in your name. It's imputed to you. 
And now that it's in your account, it's yours. Let's say you open there and you see it's negative. That's the picture of a sin. And then you go the next day and it's positive because someone put money there. And so the, the negative is not any longer imputed to you. What you were owing is no longer accounted to you. But so this is the, the, the connection. The fact God covers makes it where he doesn't impute. But even as we're bringing this, we need to speak of the next connection. And the next connection is the non-imputation of sin and the imputation of righteousness. And the authority we have to do this comes from God's word where Paul, Apostle Paul, He is referencing this very passage we have read, the first two verses in Romans 4. And he starts like this in verse 6. He says something that that maybe we wouldn't have thought of. We would maybe think, okay, it is associated, but maybe I don't have the authority to, to just put this two and two so closely connected. But look what Paul says. He says, even as David also describes, this is Romans 4, 6, describes the blessedness of the man... Unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. These words are not in Psalm 32. But Paul is speaking as if they were. Because in the very next verse he says, Saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is a man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Paul, inspired by the Spirit, is interpreting these verses in the Old Testament to us. And he's saying, when God says that He covers sin so He doesn't impute it anymore, it means that He does impute righteousness. So He doesn't just say, okay, there's no more theft because I cover it, so I won't put theft anymore to your account. Well, He puts righteousness there in the place of that theft. Where there is anger, He puts love. Where there was worriedness, there is now peace. Where there was hatred, there is now love. Because that's what it means to be righteous. And so really we enter the realm of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. So the figure of having our sins covered is connected with our desire that we would be covered with the cloak of the righteousness of Christ. And it's not in the sense that we're covered with righteousness, but inside we're full of sin. No, because that was carried away. It's the other pictures of forgiveness. And and that it's erased, that it's thrown away. It's not really there. So don't let the the covering thought make you think that sin is still there. God just covered it and He doesn't see it. No, it's, it's really not there anymore. The covering is just a picture to help you understand how truly God graciously forgives. You put all these pictures together and you really have this big sense of what happens to sin in our hearts. It goes away. But this, this leads us to our third point, the great blessing of forgiveness. This the very last portion of this point, we, we will look at the foundational reality of how can this be possible. This is not theological, wishful thinking. There's, there's theological, physical, spiritual realities. To, to prove all that I'm saying, 
And for this to truly, for this to be true, the first thing I want to do here in the great blessings of forgiveness is to just, just go through the great list of, of counter blessings, of, of woes, really, if you would like. He, he says, blessed is those, verse 2, blessed is the man. But then when, when he speaks of his, his re- experience, he, he shares that he did not feel blessed at a time. In verse 4, he says, for day and night. Well, in verse 3, he says, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah. He's describing, really in a sense, what deep depression is. Profound fatigue, bones wearing out. There's deep sorrow, this roaring through all day and night. Every time you hear the word roaring, it's, it's like an animal screaming because he's in pain or he's lost or he's hungry. And, and it's like from the soul, this roaring goes out, asking God for help, and you're in a sense of desperation. Guilt, in verse 4, for day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. That's, that's an expression for guilt. And then dryness, we can think of that moisture that turned into drought as, as a deep, deep discouragement. And so this, this was the state of this man. Beloved, this might be the state of your heart. Could there be someone here who would echo the words of David or, or knows not too long ago you were like that and it could happen again? Spurgeon said that it is better a world on the shoulder like Atlas than God's hand on the heart like David. There is nothing that troubles the soul more than unrepentant sin. There isn't. And and this, beloved, is, is the sadness. And we need to pray. We need to pray for unbelievers because they are the ones who typically have no clue that that is the great heaviness that they are experiencing. That they would have eyes to see that there's a merciful God who would grant them this very forgiveness that the psalmist is promising for all who stop keeping silent and who begin to trust in the Lord, as in verse 10, so that mercy will compass him about. See, what describes an unbeliever? He he is devoid of mercy. The believer has mercy compassing him about. The unbeliever doesn't want mercy And he's not encircled by it. And he feels the heaviness of God, but he denies it. Because to acknowledge it means to acknowledge that I'm a sinner. It means to acknowledge I have failed. It means to acknowledge I need help from outside of me. Look at the the world of today. You go into those bookstores and there's a whole self-help section. Those are books promising that the problem is not in you. The problem is out there. And and here are the keys for you to, from within, solve your problem. This psalm is is going headlong against that whole worldly philosophy. Saying that's a lost cause. To try to find help from within when, when the problem is there. But when the soul acknowledges... 
And this is where the blessedness comes. In, in, in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin unto thee. And mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgression unto the Lord. And thou, and here's the first blessing of all, thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Here's the forgiveness. You, you carried it away. Here was the load that made me dry and made me sorrowful and made me feel like my bones were, were about to break. And, and, and you did carry all of that away. And you covered my sin. And you didn't put it to my account any longer. And then what happened? It's, it's like a cascade of blessings. In verse 6 and 7 we find protection. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. We find comfort. Um, um, thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. That's like a picture of a soul that, that is found comfort in the Lord. In verse 8, we can speak of instruction and guidance. In verse 9, we can speak of understanding. In verse 10, we speak of mercy. In verse 11, it's how the psalm began. Gladness and joy. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. The psalm promised this blessedness for those whose transgressions are forgiven. Blessedness is the, blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputes not iniquity. And it ends with a threefold promise of joy and gladness and rejoicing. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice ye righteous. Shout for joy. All ye that are upright in heart. See, this man is upright in heart now because he acknowledged that he wasn't. Notice one thing this psalm isn't saying. It's not saying, blessed are you if you obey the Ten Commandments perfectly. We would all be miserable because none of us can. Blessed are you if you never miss one Lord's Day and one prayer meeting and you pay all your tithes and you do everything just right. We would all be miserable. Because if we did all those things thinking that's how we would attain blessing, we would be sinning even in doing them. So we wouldn't be blessed. It is saying, blessed are you if you're forgiven. And what does that mean? You're someone who acknowledges that you need it. What does that mean? It means you're acknowledging you're a sinner. See, that's where the world doesn't want to go. That's where our human heart doesn't want to bow to. That's where our pride doesn't want to be lowly to acknowledge. And yet, it's the remedy. It's the cure-all, you, you could say. If you acknowledge your sin, if you confess your transgression, if you trust in the Lord, verse 10, you can be certain that He will forgive you of all your sins. Spurgeon, let me read a quote from Spurgeon. Pardoning mercy is of all things in the world most to be prized, for it is the only and sure way to happiness. A full, instantaneous, irreversible pardon of transgression turns the poor sinner's hell into heaven and makes the heir of wrath a partaker in blessing. 
Note the three words so often used to denote our disobedience, transgression, sin, and iniquity are the three-headed dog at the gates of hell, but our glorious Lord has silenced its barkings forever against His own believing ones. The trinity of sin is overcome by the trinity of heaven. And how can this happen? To a great degree, it is what we hope to see and to meditate at the Lord's table in a few minutes. But before... We get there, a a word. Remember that in all of these figures of forgiveness, we do end looking at this. How can this be? How can God cancel a debt? How can He just carry your sin and take it away? How can He just erase it? How can He throw it in the depths of the sea? Um, Wouldn't it still be there? Um, Would God be just if He just erases it? Where is there justice when He just pays your debt when you're the one who should pay it? Well, it's always, we, we always answer it. It's in Christ, isn't it? How does He cover your sins? How does He not impute your sins to yourself? When we think of you, it starts that way. He covers it, and because He covers it, He says, oh, it's not imputed to you anymore. It's not to your account. It's covered. To answer this question of how can this be, theologically speaking, we invert the order. Our sins were imputed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. They were given to His account. His bosom held upon it in a spiritual way I have absolutely no idea and understanding in detail. But he who knew no sin became sin for us. That's how the Bible describes the ledger of sins that enter the account of Jesus. That theft that was covered is now in the account of Jesus as if, remember that's always the key word, as if Jesus was a thief. He never was, but it's in his account. That lie and that lust and that anger all into the account of Jesus. And because it was in the account of Jesus, it was uncovered. See, God covers sins in you when you repent. God uncovered sins in Jesus that were in His account. And notice how this was true, even in the physical sense. Christ comes before a judgment seat. And there is a man who says, you are a blasphemer. And then the votes are cast. And and, and the majority say, yes, a blasphemer. See, that's the imputation of sin, as it were. We're putting to your account that you are a transgressor to this degree. You deserve the death penalty. And it was uncovered. The whole world around was knowing here was a blasphemer going to the very tribunal of Pilate. He arrives there, and what's, what's put to his ledger is that he is a traitor, that he has committed treason. He is a king of the Jews, he declares. He needs to die. We have no king but Caesar. And although Pilate was wanting to go against that, he found him to be with no kind of, of lawlessness, ended up going from the Roman system in the ledger of Jesus, yes, 
He is a traitor. He will die the death of the cross. There was even a sign saying, this is the king of the Jews. See how uncovered were the sins that were imputed to the, to the account of Jesus. And everybody who walked and saw the Lord Jesus, see there was this reality. He, he was uncovered before all. This is a man full of sin, full of crime. He deserves to die this death. There's a, there's a sign saying, this is his crime. That's how your sins are covered and why they're not imputed to you. Because of Jesus. Because on Him they were imputed and uncovered. And Christ even suffered that picture of of covering for you. It is a protection. If you're uncovered, it is a lack of protection so that the wrath of God and the jeers of the people and the darkness of this world were afflicting the soul of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was unprotected in every direction. And of course, the, the hardest of all was from heaven's direction where he felt the very... Um, wrath of God for, for the sins that he carried. William Gurnall, the Puritan, says, To us the remission is entirely free. Our sponsor, that's Jesus, having taken upon him the whole business of paying the ransom, his suffering is our impunity, his bond our freedom, and his chastisement our peace. This is what happens when God covers your sins and how He's able to do it and remain just because the Son willingly went to the cross to do and to undergo just that. Let us pray. Our gracious, glorious God Almighty, How we thank Thee, Lord, for this blessedness. Help us, Lord. Help all of us understand if Jesus had not died on the cross and received the ledger of our sins and have been uncovered to Thy very wrath, it would mean that our sins would all be listed to our account and we would be uncovered. And we would have to face Thee on the day of judgment. And Lord, we pray that Thou would open and awaken the hearts of those who are lost, that that is exactly, precisely their state, unless they repent, unless they open their lips, as as David is suggesting to do, to acknowledge their sins, to confess their transgressions, and to believe in the Lord. Oh Lord, we pray, have mercy on every soul, For even us as believers need thy mercy to continue to repent day after day that we may experience this blessing. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.